Hello? Hello? Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Are we ready? I think we're ready. Okay. On three. One, two, three. Dad Men. Dad Men. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Dad Men, a podcast where me, Sally Ann Price, and my dad, Keith, who you just heard, rewatch the AMC drama Mad Men. Today, we're diving into season one, episode five, which is called 5G. So pour yourself something festive and buckle up. I did not even look up the AMC description of this episode, um, but it probably would have been a would have been like a one sentence thing about how Don's team win an, wins an award and someone mysterious uh, appears from his past. And uh, also notable is that Ken Cosgrove, the account guy, gets a short story published in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, which sets everyone off on um, just insane fits of jealousy uh, and causing people to act out that uh, that jealousy in different ways. So, Dad, do you want to do you want to get us started? Well, I think it's interesting, and the episode pulls you right in, in that the opening scene is Don and Betty arriving home, pretty much plastered from a industry event where Don's team has won some award, and just at the end of the scene, a door slams, and the horseshoe on the award, of course, there to indicate luck becomes detached and flops around. So it just sort of, uh, even the, the trophy itself makes fun of awards. And Dad, did this, uh, uh, we didn't see the actual industry event, but uh, did the tone ring true for you with uh, memories of boozy industry events? Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, I also love too, we see Don still in his suit, you know, he's loosening his tie and, uh, smoking that last cigarette of the night that you know he doesn't need, uh, uh, sitting in his bed and, you know, and, and Betty's getting out of her fabulous gown and, you know, she falls asleep in the fancy underwear that's kind of hard to imagine a person could actually sleep in unless they were passed out drunk. So, huh. <laughs> but we do get the bleary eyed uh, morning shot of them waking up the next morning to screaming children. And uh, we know, we know how that can be. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Sally, as a card-carrying female, how did you feel about the Liberty Capital executive account or <laughs> the uh, the bill goes straight to the office so your wife can't see who you're spending money on? Oh, I mean, I I wish I could say that I like bumped on that more, but I think um I think one of the things with the first season of this show is that I've seen it so many times that I'm already so used to just like taken that for for everything it is um i think what's funniest is um uh we're talking of course about uh at sterling cooper the pitch meeting for uh or the brainstorming meeting for a bank that wants to uh, market products specifically to men and i think the funny thing though is that when they get in the room with the bank client he basically says you know people have already been finding ways to do this we just didn't have something that we could you know that we could call it or a reason we could upcharge them Exactly. Um, so I guess my my rage on that one was just pretty pretty muted just from repetition. But um, um, uh, before we jump into the reappearance of Don's brother, I had mm -hmm. two notes on couples. One being Midge and Don, where she asks him all the philosophical questions, and Don's answer, "I don't even think about it." And, and Midge almost recognizing the fact that Don is this 
magnificent piece of damaged goods says, mm-hmm. I like being your medicine. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as soon as that comes out of her mouth, you're sort of like, that's, oh man, that kind of takes it out of the, uh, you know, as we come to understand about Don and particularly in his relationship with women or his, you know, idea of home life versus work life. Um, he's pretty good at compartmentalizing and um, like to an almost sociopathic degree at times. Um, but even, um, I don't know, I kind of felt like you could feel Midge, like, you know, when she calls him at the office uh, because she can. And uh, I feel like we do kind of start to see Midge maybe overstepping a little bit the box that he would like to keep her in where he's, um, where he's kind of the person in control who can dip in and out, you know, whenever he wants. Um, and um, but I, also there's going to be a lot more Midge stuff coming up uh, in this episode and the next episode. So we'll have we'll have plenty of time to to talk about that. But um, the other interesting thing, though, is that because Midge calls him at work and you can tell that's not really a normal part of their dynamic, uh, we see we see sorry, someone's trying to text me right now and that is not a thing I'm doing. Um, but uh, we see Peggy as the secretary overhearing part of their call and just being so completely caught off guard, not because she didn't assume that there was stuff going on that she didn't know about, um, but then she feels like she's caught in Don's web of lies when his wife and kids come into the office and he's missing an appointment. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. That, uh, But then Joan really, I think, has the best line in that kind of subplot when she says, if you're even thinking about passing judgment, you are in the wrong business. Oh, for sure. Uh, the other couple's thing I thought about was Pete and Trudy, emblematic of the group jealousy around Ken's published article. Pete cranks out an article that sounds pretty half-baked and through Trudy's connection with an old bow, is able to arrange to get it published. But it shows the lengths that Pete will go to to achieve an objective in terms of almost like selling his wife out. I know. That was the thing that made me feel so gross, especially because, you know, you see how uncomfortable she is with it. Um, and you see that it's, um, I think, I think part of it is we really see that Pete um, is kind of a narcissist and that he really doesn't consider uh, at this time where, where this character is at this time, of course, the character kind of evolves and develops um, a little bit more over the course of seasons. But we, he really doesn't seem to see or relate to where other people are ever coming from. He's kind of just laser focused on his own, what he wants, and not even like in a professional sense. Like this one is entirely about Penny Cosgrove did something and people think he's smarter than I am, and we have the same job, and I can't have that, so I need to beat him, and I am prepared to put my wife, who loves me and trusts me, you know, far more than she should, um, is willing to put her in an incredibly uncomfortable position, and then make her feel bad about it. So, I, you know, that was some kind of manipulative, I think we can throw around maybe phrases like emotionally abusive, but if you start to throw around terms like that in a show like this, it, it, you're never going to stop. Um, right. But, um, you know, when she said, like, you know, if I'd done what the other guy wanted, I could have gotten you published anywhere. And he's saying, you don't want me to have the things that I want. And you just so know that she would do anything to give him what she wants. She wants to be the best little wife you ever saw. She wants to be worthy of this, you know, fabulous, professional, old money, upper east side lifestyle that she thinks she's inherited. 
um, and uh, and she doesn't really realize who she's dealing with and that he's kind of a pretty callous person in these early seasons. A sniveling twerp. A sniveling twerp, which makes me sad, too, because, um, again, not just um, her character on the show, but I really love the actress Alison Brie and um, some of the choices she's made. Um, folks will recognize her from the Netflix series Glow, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Um, and uh, knowing kind of what she brings to that character and how that family dynamic evolves over the course of seasons. It's just so gross to see these, you know, these, you know, when you think about it, it's like, oh, well, it's, you know, the little misses and the professional, you know, man in the gray flannel suit. But it's also like, you know, they're, they're how old, they're like what in their early twenties, they're like kids out of college who have no idea what they're doing, uh, trying to talk about their feelings. <laughs> Uh, I enjoyed the juxtaposition, uh, juxtaposition, I guess, of scenes uh, to get out of a, a boring production meeting. Uh, Don has a guest in the lobby that turns out to be his long-lost half-brother. And just how emblematic that was that everything can come unglued in a minute. Yeah, and especially, so uh, we we see that, the award that Don, uh, that Don's team wins and that we see the kind of the end of the celebration at the top of the episode, uh, he gets written up in the newspaper and there's a picture of him and Roger, you know, smiling and holding their trophies with cigarettes hanging out of their mouths. Um, and um, his long lost brother, who is now in New York, sees the picture and tracks him down to his office. Um, so at this point, I guess we know he has a long lost brother. Um, and that he left home for some reason. Um, and, but this is the first time we hear him admitting to uh, changing his name. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, at this point, all we know really is that he'd gotten recognized on the train a couple episodes prior by somebody who called him Dick Whitman. And he didn't correct that guy. But you also know that he was never going to call that guy up. Um, so it's interesting to see in the conversation with the brother, whose name is Adam, is that we see um, – we really see him holding up the denial as hard as he can for as long as he can. Um, and then kind of relent just a little bit, um, but still not enough for what this, for what his brother needs from him. Um, but one of the things that really struck me the most about this um, kind of this arc in this episode and learning about the brother and stuff. Um, and I think I've said this before, it just astonishes me. It astonishes me how much these men are keeping from their wives. Um, and in particular, how much Don is keeping from Betty, because not only it's like at that point, she doesn't know the childhood home he escaped. She you know, doesn't know that he had changed his name for whatever reason uh, and apparently has never questioned it so much. But I'm just still like, how could you have like a like a really intense emotional thing, like a long lost brother appearing on your doorstep and asking you all these questions? And then you just go home and act like everything's okay. And she's like, maybe we could get our own place this summer, you know. Um, I'm, I'm just astonished anybody gets away with that for as long as they do in this show. Right. Um, I thought the name was clever on two levels, 5G being Adam's apartment uh, in the building he lives in in New York City, or the hotel, and then Don handing him $5,000 in cash essentially to go away, 5G. I, I caught that too. I knew I knew the apartment number one, but I hadn't thought about the um, the quantity of the cash that he gives him. But you know what I remembered so clearly from watching this episode, like that first season when it aired, um, was that it's this is now getting to the end of the episode when Don goes to see the brother at his apartment, 
um, and offers him money to get out of his life forever and to leave New York. Uh, but when he reaches for the money, uh, and I, I remember thinking so vividly, uh, not knowing that much about this character or anything else, I was so sure he was going to pull out a gun and threaten him. Uh, but instead of pulling out a gun and threatening him into leaving town and hiding, he gives him $5,000 because he's basically in his head like, well, how much more do you need if you're going to start over? He just takes for granted that just picking up and moving and starting over somewhere else that, you know, that you can just reinvent yourself that easily because apparently that's something that he's done, even though we don't exactly know how or why. Absolutely. Uh, two statements. Um, Don to Adam, this never happened. And then when uh, Betty comes in to pay a visit to Don's office with the kids to go to the photography appointment and Don's not there, and Betty says to Peggy, you probably know more about him than I do. Mm-hmm. And she also makes that joke, don't you just hate it when he runs at the mouth? <laughs> Or, you know, just runs on and on and on and on and on and talks and talks and talks. And and Peggy is so freaked out that she doesn't even get the sarcasm. But also, I think we're learning that sarcasm is in a supernatural mode for, uh, or isn't a mode that comes naturally for for our Betty. Uh, So she does sometimes have a kind of interesting sense of humor. But um, typically when she's like all done up and going into the office like that, you know, uh, that's not the moment we're accustomed to hearing, hearing her crack jokes. And when uh, Betty's talking with Francine in the kitchen, yet again, I still worry for Francine's fictional baby. Oh, I worry very much for, and, you know, I wish I could, uh, I wish I had looked up at some point, because we'll see Francine again. At some point, I'll look her up. But that actress, um, so she's one of those actresses who's had a lot of bit parts, like in a lot of sitcoms and TV shows and stuff like that. Um, and I remember her having a particularly memorable turn in the first uh, season of How I Met Your Mother. So if people are looking sideways at Francine and trying to picture her without the, you know, the beehive hairdo and uh, where they might recognize her from, that's one memorable turn. But uh, she's a person I'm always glad to see when she pops up. And she's just so good in the, uh, in the, in this kind of just uh, catty neighbor. Be, yeah, no, it's fabulous. And as the uh, model of what, how not to behave when you're pregnant. <laughs> We've danced around the group jealousy around Ken getting published. Focus on Paul's jealousy for a minute. Paul the writer. It's just, and you know, I think we both know the kind of people who are like so in love with the idea of being a writer. Uh, And you see Paul, you know, he wears the writerly cardigan and he's got the pipe that he's smoking. Uh, And the idea that the account guy, uh, who he the later how he puts it is you know I've been competing with everyone neck and neck here I didn't realize I was competing with you because I and then basically because I don't think of you as a writer because you're an account guy um and it's like well maybe maybe Kenny is Cosgrove is the more successful writer because he's found a way to do the work he wants to do uh and not have it mess with his head and his professional life as much as as Paul and Peter who have so much of their of their self-esteem bound up in how they think they're doing in this really dysfunctional job. I love the way that um, Ken stuffs it in Paul's face of, you lost the competition. (laughs) Well, but I also, I did appreciate, I did appreciate how Paul 
embarrassed him in front of the girls, even though Ken ended up getting the last laugh when Paul goes over and rips it out of the magazine and then puts it back in his pocket uh, and says, well, said you have like 50 copies, right? <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just, uh, there's just so much in this office. It's like, wow, there are so much men being petty with other men <laughs> uh, when they're like, quote unquote, supposed to be the people getting the work done around here. Um, and it's like, man, I wonder what would happen if y'all just checked your egos for a second and like focused on the things you're supposed to be focusing on. <laughs> You'd probably be so productive. Who knows? Uh, Boys Life magazine was wonderful. That sounds it like was a very valid magazine. Yeah, it was very predictable, but it was always very enjoyable, and it was the kind of thing that your aunt and uncle would give you a subscription to at Christmas. Mm-hmm. But it always had interesting stuff about camping and hiking, and there was like Boy Scout crossover. But um, uh, Pete saying my article is going to be adjacent to an ad for cigars that blow up and mm-hmm. joke, you know the the rubber puke or the <laughs> pile of horse poo on the floor made of rubber. I mean, mm-hmm. it was that was so emblematic of boys' life, but very, very enjoyable. I that's loved that reference. That's also just something I think that we really so see in this first season is you so see how important print magazines are in a way that, you know, by 2007, you know, print magazines had already been for uh, uh, quite a bit of a ride that, you know, you and I have both had front row seats to, but, um, you know, all of the mentions to, you know, in this episode, we see Ken's story gets published in the Atlantic Monthly, and someone else says, like, you know, oh, my, you know, my dad reads Atlantic Monthly, like, that's a real literary magazine, Uh, versus Boy's Life, or in other issues we've heard about Reader's Digest, we've heard about Playboy, and magazines are just such shorthand for the audiences they speak to in in this office environment. And with that, Dad, I wonder, um, there's a magazine that I know you and I both have a particular appreciation of that I would like you to to describe for the millennials in the audience who don't know what it is. Could you tell uh, tell the nice people about Holiday Magazine? Holiday Magazine was a lifestyle magazine that was travel, a little bit of home stuff, living the good life but it also had terrific fiction, and it was a large format, perfect bound, so that it had size and girth. It was um, robust and lavish. Mm-hmm. And the, I think to remember, I think Vanity Fair had revisited it a couple years ago, and that's kind of when I learned about it. And you said, oh, of course, your late grandparents used to love Holiday Magazine. Um, but that it had a little bit of that um, eclectic mix of stories that sometimes, um, you know, uh, you know, in our professional experience, we've both kind of known certain ways that this can hit or miss, but that sometimes a successful magazine or a successful creative team at a magazine, um, that sometimes there's something to be said for kind of the eclectic mix of things and what, what that composite looks like. Uh, versus does this have to necessarily make sense? Does every piece of this necessarily have to make sense in relation to every other piece of this? Um, the, the real appeal of Holiday Magazine was beyond the lifestyle that it so wonderfully portrayed was that the topics, might they be design or fashion, while those would roll with the time, Holiday would 
scratch the edgy uh pushing the the envelope and yet what i remembered about holiday magazine was that no one would ever throw a copy out mm-hmm. you could get rid of your time and your look and your life but you held on to a holiday because there maybe there was an article about a resort island or something there was always something that people held on to their holiday for and they wouldn't uh, decimate the magazine with scissors to cut something out and put it in a clip file. Mm-hmm. And then didn't you say it wasn't Elsie uh, uh, known to, uh, you know, leaf through them and pick them up at, you know, flea markets or things like that? Oh, yes, because they were of such lasting value and it was such a high-quality piece that a two- or three-year-old holiday magazine thrown casually on your coffee table was still very au courant. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that, I think the kind of that, you know, when we talk about what magazines mean in the world of Mad Men or kind of how they're orienting us and sort of where we are in 20th century cultural his, history, um, for me at least as somebody who, you know, who has, you know, worked at magazines and things like that, um, I think that's just a useful uh, that magazines, I think in the print magazines, say so much about how we talk to one another or, or uh, who we think we're talking to. Um, and I always liked what you said about Elsie uh, picking up holiday magazines and stuff, because that's, uh, that's, of course, my late grandmother, your mother, Elsie, um, who was also a writer. And, uh, and as we've talked about already on this podcast, that she and Harold uh, had a certain kind of, I think, uh, maybe a, we can say a Don and Betty, but maybe a little more little more sideways or, you know, a little, some, there some, some kind of different about it, but the, um, in that post-war, that post-war kind of suburban boom and kind of aspirational lifestyle, I think I'd like, I'm like, I would like to think that Don Draper would have liked Holiday Magazine. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, interesting, I, you know, back to Don for a second, Don burning the picture from earlier in his life was such an emblem of finally trying to burn Dick Whitman for good and leave him behind. But his line to Adam, I have a life that only goes in one direction, forward. Mm-hmm. Man. And it's so, and it's just so sad too, because you see this is so early on in the show and in the run of the show uh, but we already see that even though this guy so is projecting that he has it so together and he's so mysterious and glamorous and successful, um, you really do see just how precarious it is. You know, one day he's getting recognized on the train. What if somebody had overheard? Now there's this person in his office and they're going to a coffee shop, you know, a few blocks away, but it's very possible someone else could see or hear. Um, and I remember at the time that really just made me feel like, what is this guy so afraid of? What is the original sin or what is the secret that he thinks is just going to um, blow everything up so much? And um, um, I think I want to say it's by the end of the first season or maybe it's by the end of the second season. I think we really um, is, I, I think the levels at which we kind of begin to understand and uh, some of the other characters begin to understand um you know, but it, it reminds me a little bit of someone you and I both know, may they rest in peace, um, who uh, died of a massive coronary about five minutes before it seems like he was going to get in some pretty serious trouble um, for things having to do with his taxes. And the it's, house it's, of as the, as the house of cards is ready to fall. 
as the house of cards is ready to fall. And that's when you just realize whatever else we don't even know about that guy yet. We just, we know that that's a level of stress that he is carrying around with him at all times. And if he seems like he's relaxed and like he's not actively stressed about it, it's probably because he's drinking excessively, smoking excessively, or engaging, you know, with the company of women uh, who are not his wife. Um, and, but he's kind of seems to have some of that attitude of like, but it works, don't touch it. When you're ultimately that self-absorbed, Sally, you often don't notice what's going on with others. And let's take for a perfect example in this episode, Don's comment to Betty when she's asking him about Peggy, and he says, Peggy, fresh as the driven snow. And how really wrong he is. Mm-hmm. That is so true. And I and I love we'll get into that a little bit more in the next episode. What I loved about Peggy in this episode is that we she doesn't really say that much, but we see a couple of shots where you see where we're really seeing from her eye as she's kind of looking around and taking things in. Um and I think once she kind of gets access to one of Don's secrets, like, you know, she knows that he's going over to see a woman who's not his wife who called him at his desk. Um, and then I think she later describes it like, oh, and then he came back all greasy and Ugh, like it was just gross. Like she just feels like now she's seen too much or like she knows things about him that she doesn't want to know. Um, and she's kind of looking around the office and everything going on the same way it always does. And she's just kind of like, is everybody hiding these kinds of secrets? Like uh, she kind of can't. Uh, for even as we come to see that she seems to be paying a little bit more attention than she gets credit for, uh, she still seems kind of, you know, as she says to Joan, this is a very strange job. This is a very strange job. Like, I do not know what is expected of me um, to be successful in this job because I'm like a good kid who wants to show up and do a good job and get my paycheck. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm so confused about how these people live their lives because it's so foreign to me. So I only have one other note left from this episode mm -hmm. and for me what it said was Betty ending the episode talking about wanting a summer house mm -hmm. that was for me symbolic of her wanting to escape all the things that terrify her about her life oh the yeah fact, the fact that she's subservient the fact that she has very little control the fact that she can't decide on a political uh uh candidate without her husband's buy-in and, and validation, um, that wanting a summer house was just wanting to escape her life. Mm -hmm. I think we also see, too, you know, we're gathering that, you know, that they're going to go to where her family goes, and, you know, and we gather that her father does not love Don that much, um, or, you know, doesn't maybe think of him as the son he never had or anything quite like that. Um, but it also reminds me of in Ladies' Room in the second episode um, is when Betty reveals to Mona that um, that her mother had just died, like, within the mm -hmm. year prior. Um, so I think that's another thing is, you know, if you think about kind of the housewife of this era, you know, that you're raised by your family and then you leave your father's house to go to the sorority house and then to your husband's house. Uh, and, you know, that your role is always kind of existing in relation to um, – you know the the ma the man of the house or the you know the your you know that you're making off making your own family and that she's like okay I'm here I'm ready I'm gonna do my part uh, but that Don is as we've said so self-absorbed so uh, caught up in his own kind of web of lies and um, 
feeling like everything's on the line. Uh, but um, I think I think that that was in that second episode when she reveals that, you know, that her mother had died. And, you know, anytime she brings up her mother, um, it really ends up saying something about how Betty feels about her own marriage or her own aging uh, or, you know, kind of this fixation with aging and death and what her appearance will look like. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it makes you wonder when, when she goes to her family, to where Cape May, I think she said is where her family stays. Right. Um, and, you know, of course we'll come to meet some more of Betty's family and learn a little more about the dynamics at play there. But you just like, you're like, Oh God, what kind of family <laughs> blood to this person, <laughs> this person that we see in front of us who is so, um, I, I, I don't want to say it like in an unkind way, but so, you know, kind of ill-equipped to deal with the world around her and with her own life that she's living in. True. So. I didn't get a handle on what the, I believe it was classical music that ended the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember at this point because it was like a week ago, I think, that I watched it. Which is to say that I just didn't do the research Everybody should know, you and I, and this shows of our timelessness and the fact that we're time travelers, of <laughs> how classical music has integrated into my life and yours over the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. And I will throw out, this is not a paid advertisement. We have no relationship with, uh, with this organization. But I personally want to shout out uh, WFMT, Classical Music Chicago, uh, that radio station while I'm working from home and while I'm, uh, you know, cooking for myself and doing all these other things. Um, and that's, my dad taught me that your local classical radio station uh, can be your best friend. So thank you, dad, for teaching me that. And thanks uh, WFMT Chicago, because they've been doing a great job of uh, DJing more serenity than I think any individual could muster in this particular moment we're living through. So uh, with, we appreciate a, when it gets instrumental. <laughs> with an appreciative nod to the late Jerry Stiller. Serenity now. <laughs> oh man! And now I think with that, if we if we get into how sad we are about the late Jerry Stiller, I think we're only going to get further and further away from from the show. So I think that means it's probably time to wind down for this episode. Dad, you good? I'm good. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to our discussion of 5G here on Dad Men. We wish you luck on your Mad Men journey, whatever that means for you right now. Maybe you're doing one episode at a time. Maybe you're binging it. Maybe you're not listening to it at all or watching it at all, but thinking about it. Uh, next up, we'll revisit Season 1, Episode 6, Babylon. In the meantime, find us on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Anchor.fm. You can also hang out with us on Instagram at dad underscore med underscore pod or get in touch with one of us directly. I'm at Sally Annihilate, and KP is at Boomercentric. I think that's everything. Talk soon, Pops. Good night and good news. Bye.